Welcome to episode 669 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Rightio, team, welcome along to episode 669 of Iron Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Oz. How you going, mate? I'm very good, Bevan. Apparently, you, beat, you actually didn't get fourth, you won it. I won the Kona 70.3. No, we're pre-recording the show and uh, we're going to insert a little coverage from Kona, but we're recording this on the 14th of May and it's now the June the 4th. Yes, it is indeed. So, we basically, we'll get into that in a second. John, Iron Talk is proudly brought to you by... Extreme Endurance. Oh, Buffer. And our patrons. Name one, Jumbo. Mark Steely Thatcher. We've got Andrew Stormtrooper Gilmore. And David Crazy Fire Haywood. Okay, guys. And this week's show, it is a little bit different. Now, for the next few weeks, it's going to be a bit different because I'm on holiday. But we've got lots of good interviews coming up, actually, because we've done our work. But this week, what's going to happen is we're going to do a quick little bit of upcoming races. Then John's going to, he sent me his race report from Kona so he's going to send that through and I'll put that in so he can talk about his race so you all actually know what happened and then we we actually got Macron she's about six weeks ago now based on when you guys are listening to this to talk about the gods of the 80s or at least the male gods of the 90s should I say so basically who were the top triathletes and it was short I yeah, was short yep. course I, um, athletes in the 90s it's awesome you guys absolutely love this interview so before we get into that Jombo let's talk about the races that are coming up this weekend we've got Ironman Cairns which is a really important race for a number of people because it is uh, a, it's a regional championship so you want to do well at that uh, but it's also got a few extra Kona slots uh, and it's got you know more prize money 150,000 prize purse US paying 10 deep there's uh, two male slots two female slots so that means first and second is guaranteed both male and female and then there's two and uh, un sort of attached slots and we'll see where they go it's always hard to tell uh, whether they'll go to the males side or the females typically they'll go to the males um, but other races uh, has been otherwise so at the, st- the time of recording there's not too many people uh, listed on the start list and I'm sure that will change as we go closer to the race but uh, Terenzo Bazzoni is down uh, Kona qualified already so that means a slot will roll down if he gets in the top few but the one that's probably under the most pressure that really will want to be in Kona obviously is Braden Curry who does not have a slot yet yeah, he and won the, it last year in a great race against great Gomez great race uh, so pressure's on him and the reason the pressure is on is because you know uh, if we'd been on the old points system he'd be sweet you know he got uh Where'd he get in Kona? Fifth? Fourth? Fifth? Something like that? He got fifth, man, because he got beaten by O'Donnell. By O'Donnell, yeah. Um, Which he wouldn't have picked. Yeah. But he'd, and so he would have got great points from that and would have been able to top them up with a few other races here and there and would have been sweet. But now, different system, and he's in a you know spot of bother. He'll still be backing himself to... to win this race but he's going to have to finish well, puts uh, a lot of pressure on the top doesn't doesn't it yeah you know what i mean like um like when we think about how much longer you have like let's say he has a well if he's not if he's not, you're going to pick and get top three aren't you you'd think so but you know he if, he's, if he's a little bit off or he gets a puncher or gets a drafting so penalty. when do you do your next race you try pop it off quickly or do you you know when does it start to cut into standard damage kona because as we said last year you know, in the previous system yeah you might not win but if you get third Still going to be good points yeah. for this sort of race, but you get third here, and if it's not somebody that's already qualified, you might be screwed. So I'm, I'm backing him. You know, even if he has oh, an yeah. average race, he should be fine. Last year but he swam 46, rode to 424, and then ran a sub 4, 240. That was yeah, that was a 
bloody impressive run. It really was. Uh, beating out Gomez, who, you by know... By two minutes. By two minutes. And then Terenzo was third last year, Tim O'Donnell fourth, and uh, Denny Chevron fifth. So pays 10 deep. Tenth is $1,000, or that's what it was last year. So looking forward to that male's race. Um, Terenzo hasn't had uh, some had too many amazing races so far this year. So, um, yeah, luckily he's already got a slot courtesy of Western Australia last year. On the female side of racing, um, we've got uh, listed Sarah Crowley, who is definitely the, one of the strong favourites for this race, along with uh, Sarah True, who she hasn't qualified either. Oh, I wow. don't think. She hasn't got a qualifying name next to her. So she qualified last year in Frankfurt and then went on to finish. Where did she finish last year? I know she blew up a bit on the run. Can't quite remember off the top of my head. But she's she, between those two, she'll be a quality race. But Sarah Crowley does already have a slot. So again, kind of thinking if Sarah True even just has an average day, should be fine. But she's still got to go out there and do the business. On the female side of the race last year, uh, it was a great performance by Teresa Adam, beating out Marina right, McCaffrey. Yeah, that's right. She had a great race, didn't she? And uh, Beth McKenzie in third place. So... Yeah, should be good times. Uh, usually a good race. Good last year, great race. Uh, weather can sometimes be yeah, a little bit mixed. So sometimes get a bit of rain, um, but it's well organised. Uh, good money, good points. Good time of the season to get things sorted. Also for age groupers, uh, for Southern Hemisphere athletes, really good opportunity uh, to get some slots. You know, a lot of the slots people that are going to Kona from New Zealand and Australia would have picked it, picked up their slots from either Western Australia, Ironman New Zealand, Ironman Australia. It's often this race, being a championship race, it rolls a little bit further. So uh, good luck to everybody going out there and racing. We've also got Ironman Boulder happening this weekend and we've got some of the kind of typical hitters for this race really, don't we? We do indeed. Uh, Callum Millwood's in there, Brent McMahon. Justin Deere. Justin Deere, Joe Gambles. Um, Matt Hansen will definitely be the top seed, already Kona qualified. Um, then on the female side of things, um, we've got Lauren Brandon. She'll be spanking it out there at the front early on uh, after the swim, which will probably beat most of the males out of the swim. You've got Leslie Smith, great runner. Angela Nath, uh, who had a fantastic second half of the year last year. And uh, yeah, so this is typically a race which doesn't draw the big kahunas. Yeah, they're often going to be either at Cairns or getting ready for Frankfurt or Rote. So kind of a fairly typical sort of field. It's got, uh, it has got four slots for Kona, one male, one female and two unassigned. Uh, only got $40,000 US total prize pool. God, that's really not that much, is it? No. That's 40000 spread, males and females paying 60. And you always, when they announced Boulder, a few years ago, we were like, oh man, this would be a booming race because it's the hometown. You know what I mean? Like, you kind of thought it'd be always be a pretty good field because it's the kind of spiritual home of triathlon in many ways. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not like Mission Bay or, or California or some other places around the world, but it's kind of where everyone Absolutely. goes to train. Yep. You know, and you, but it hasn't really drawn good. good um, I suppose you've put no money there. Yeah, money talks. Yeah. Um, so last year we had Chris Lieferman take it out uh, in 8.07, set a new. Uh, I think he was just off setting the bike course record. Somebody else beat him out by four or five seconds. But he had a great race. Swam 54, rode 4.09 and ran 2.59 for an 8.07. Joe Gambles was second and Patrick McCowan was uh, in third place. And then on the female side, we had Kirsty Yarn taking it out with uh, 4.47 on the bike in front of Caddy Evans and Dee Griesbauer was in third at 9.36. If you don't know who Dee Dee Griesbauer is, she's uh, currently doing quite a bit of the commentary work for some of the Ironman races. Uh, oh, really? She's doing a good job. 
good stuff. Um, so what's going to happen right now? John raced the Kona 70.3 over the weekend. We don't actually know the result, but you're about to find out. He's going to give you a race report on his race. So here is John from Hawaii. Okay, John, overall impressions of the race? Uh, the race over here is always hard, so, but luckily weather conditions this year were fairly favourable. So we've had a great week over here. Everything's sort of gone to plan in terms of the training and the preparation. Going in, uh, the only issues I had was a few bit of stomach pains going in, just from uh, all the nutrition during the week. But I uh, felt pretty confident, and uh, overall, giving myself maybe about a... A 7 out of 10, something like that. Wasn't amazing, but pretty strong day at the office. You were longer on the swim than we expected. Yes, and I don't wear a watch in the swim. And uh, I came out in 30 minutes, which I'm picking as possibly my slowest ever time for a swim. But I've been reassured by others that it was about 2.1 to 2.2 k's. So the swim, uh, I kind of lined myself up in the front row. I saw the, the main contender I thought was going to win overall, Dan Sabletsky. He was sort of lined up in third third row. And I didn't uh, want to tr- really drag anybody through the swim. The hope for the swim was that somebody was going to drag me around. But about uh, 20 metres into the swim, I was in the front and uh, on my merry way, had the board paddler in front of me and just let it out. And overall, yeah, swim was was pretty solid, just a little bit long. Uh, but got the glory coming out of the swim. We were first wave, so I was first out of the water, so that's always a bit of fun. <laughs> the transition, how, how did that go? Uh, well, I took my swim skin off, which was bonus number one. That stayed on once before for the swim, uh, for the for the bike ride. I uh, did take it off for the run that time. Transition was pretty good. Uh, onto the bike and first had a pretty healthy lead over Dan Sabletsky. And through the first part of the ride, you ride down to Manalani and back, which is, uh, I think it's about... 10 k's each way, something like that, held the lead until we got back to where we kind of start the bike ride and uh, Dan Sabletsky caught me at the worst possible moment. I was literally had gone through an aid station, grabbed the water, was refilling my hydration unit on the front of the bike thinking I hope he doesn't catch me right about now because I was at a terrible speed, had one hand off the handlebar, not in a very good gear and he just sailed straight past me and I didn't really think I was going to be able to keep up anyway but it would have been nice if I'd had a a bit of a fighting chance Uh, and then uh, it was just solo the rest of the day. He was up the road, I was completely by myself and uh, it stayed that way. Obviously on the, in the run I had a bit of company there with the multi-lap stuff. The main challenge on the bike, and we've done a high five on this, uh, was peeing on the bike. Now, I've done a high five but I could not execute myself and that caused me huge, actually really caused me some issues because A, I had a real sore tummy because I was trying to pee every time we had a bit of a downhill I'd freewheel trying to just completely relax and just let it come out but it wouldn't come out and uh, so A I was uncomfortable B it was really occupying my mind and C it was uh, <coughs> it was meaning that I really wasn't riding quite the power that I wanted to so a little bit frustrating on the bike but I knew that my power was quite was down a bit but my heart rate was also down nutrition was going on board I was just pretty uncomfortable and getting pretty frustrated that I couldn't pee. The road to Harvey is notorious for the winds how was it today? Very very calm so we got a little bit of wind um, towards Harvey um, but really for Kona it was about as easy as it can get. 
Someone to the run on the golf course. That's a weird surface, isn't it? It is. And everybody that was on the camp just says, bloody hell, that's a hard run. And uh, and it was. And initially I couldn't, I didn't, my watch wasn't working for the first K or so. And so I was initially thinking, bug this, I won't even turn the thing on and I'm just going to run by feel. Felt really good coming off the bike. Um, then got it going after maybe a K or so. Uh, and it was more operator error than anything else. Um, and then just got into it and it actually felt felt good on the run. Kept a steady pace the whole way through and um, didn't make any inroads. In fact, lost time uh, to the leader, but overall really quite pleased with my run. Um, the first lap was, I think I was averaging 4.06 per K, which is nothing to write home about on normal surfaces, but over here, pretty decent. And then the second lap, I was only 4.10s, only a little bit of a fade. Uh, and thanks to the camp, pretty well heat adapted. Didn't find it, you know, it was bloody hot, but it was manageable. So, yeah, overall pushed pretty hard, didn't quite nuke myself to the level that I wanted to, but all in all, pretty solid. And you got a bowl? I did get a bowl, so second in the age group, uh, seventh overall, the, some of the young fellas absolutely axed it, uh, the guy that won rode a 2.14, um, which is pretty solid on this course over here, and yeah, can't, can't complain too much, would have liked to have biked harder. Had I biked harder, I'd say chances are I probably would have run a little bit worse. So all in all, probably a couple of minutes off where I wanted to be. But uh, it's not very often that you have a really good swim, really good bike, really good run. I had a good swim, good run, bit shit bike. But uh, yeah, all in all, it's pretty good. And um, with broadcasting, Bevan, you probably won't even listening to this. Alan's <laughs> a professional broadcaster, so he knows what we're doing. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, hopefully I'll, I'll be putting my files up on our Facebook page if you're keen to see what I, um, you know, in terms of how the, the day unfolded for the bike and the run. I don't take the swim file. But, uh, yeah, camp athletes had a great time. Uh, we had four or five on the podium, which is fantastic and sort of our usual standard. Uh, but overall, look, what we get out of this camp is, A, people have a great time during the week. And uh, then when they finally get to the race, they actually feel like they're well-prepared, couple of days out they're shitting themselves thinking oh my god I'm so tired we've had some massive days but by the time race day comes around most people perform really really well so and this is Alan how did you find your week Alan he's one of our super support crews he's a net Lee's husband he's a support crew twice over here and uh, over in Rote once or twice twice in Rote as well so Alan how, what was your uh, impressions of today and, and the week it was hot today it's interesting the that golf course you think Oh, it's, it's grass, it'll be nice, but it's not. It's really humid over the grass. Um, I have never been so wet as I was on the Rhine to Volcano. <laughs> I was so wet, I'd gone pink and wrinkly. And that's where I'll leave it. <laughs> yeah. No, the, our support crew is fantastic. So we had uh, we had Mr. Sausage, Ollie Jenner, over here. And uh, he had, had a good time out there. Kylie Cox, uh, first time over here. And we had Alan and Dr. Feelgood Dave Dwan, as usual, was over here uh, keeping us entertained. And we haven't quite found out if he got a Kona slot yet or not he's still down at the prize giving I would say this year normally Kona slots don't roll very much but they were rolling quite some distance so 40 to 44 age group uh, first place took it I didn't take it for second there was two slots third didn't take it fourth took it and then there was another slot that got reallocated to our age group so it went down six or seven deep and a couple of other age groups that did similar thing a lot of the other ones went to first place but quite a few people who won their age group already had a slot so there was more rolling than usual so thanks for listening guys um, Bevan and I will be back in the studios as you're going to hear later on in a couple of weeks time and uh, by that stage if we 
Alan and I uh, get around to interviewing anybody else, you'll hear a few more impressions from the camp. So we'll catch up with you in a few weeks. And thanks, Alan, for, for being our guest interviewer. You're welcome. Hopefully you had a good race, eh? Based, oh. on, based on how you're feeling right now, I'm thinking you are going to have a good race. I think I'm going to have a good performance. I've got no idea what sort of place that's going to end up, but I think the difference, and we'll find out. Yeah, that's sound, this is going to sound really odd if I've had a real shitter, but the difference here is I'm mentally in a place to go a bit deeper because normally I use Kona as a springboard to other races or to, to yep. something else that's coming up. This time, you know, I've prepared specifically as I can for this event and I've got Epic Camp coming up uh, shortly in France but this has been my main event so you know the, the specificity of the, the build up has been much more slanted to half Ironman rather than Ironman with a, with a half Ironman thrown in so always a good race irrespective of what happened it really is a good good event. Okay Jombo let's talk about a sponsor. Extreme endurance. Like buffer. One thing I always do going into to camps and anything like that, especially when you've got a race attached to the end of it, is making sure that you can keep your body in one piece. And uh, everybody that comes on the camp, so especially in Kona, they get uh, some extreme endurance to make sure that you know that day-to-day beating that we take, especially on this camp, uh, the first four or five days we go pretty long. Uh, you're trying to do everything to mitigate. You know, being sore afterwards, so good nutrition is really important. Uh, taking your extreme endurance is obviously really important. Um, we have massage on the camp as well, um, but there's also that uh, time to make sure you put your legs up and focus on a lot of those things we often uh, put aside, you know, in terms of doing some extra flexibility work, putting your legs up the, side, up the wall, actually having some time where you completely chill out. But a really big part of this for me is, uh, is the extreme endurance. It means you bounce back from sessions a lot quicker and just gives you that nice little extra boost going into a race. So check it out, xendurance.com. Uh, also this week we've been fueling ourselves with some of the Fuel 5, which I really enjoy just to give a bit of variety. You know, when you're doing big, big training on multiple days, just having sugary stuff every single day just gets a little bit too much and the Extreme Endurance Fuel 5 is just a nice lighter flavour so check that out just the standard Extreme Endurance and Fuel 5 check it out xendurance.com yeah and especially if you're going to do like a big training block Mm. you know if you're going to do like I know John's got his camps but a lot of people do like a five day training block Mm. get on top of that before and after to keep yourself healthy It's, it's all good stuff John we've been doing the gods of triathlon in the last period of time we've done the 80s with both Scott and Aaron around the gods of triathlon but we're kind of dividing things up now because what we know is that around the 90s it did kind of split the mm-hmm. athletes went more short course and long course it was the, the moment the sport divided I suppose in many ways wasn't mm. it um, and so we thought we'd get a legend of that time on to talk about who were the gods of the 80s and or 90s sorry and obviously Macca is the man so we got Macca on a few weeks ago to talk about this it's a great discussion mm. really great discussion so here is Macca about the gods male short 90s so we're making back again this week. We have indeed, and we are talking the gods. Bevan always wanted to do the, the, the goat, the greatest of all time, but I said, hey. He's not letting me make it. I'm not allowed to. Back it up. We'll go generation. We'll go 10 years at a time, and once we get into the 90s and beyond, we're doing either short course or long course, because that's really when the sort of separation started. So a man who was amongst it in the 90s is Chris McCormick. He won the ITU World Long Distance Champs in 1997 in Perth. It was also one of the big players on the World Cup circuit at the time, sort of through the 90s, uh, winning many, many races. His record was 50 ITU starts, 15 podiums and 7 wins, so it's a pretty handy ratio. And one, one of the first questions I was going to have for you was, 
when did you first get involved in the sport as a professional? But I, I did look up on triathlon.org your actual first um, result that was up there, and it was the 1993 World Championships in Manchester. And man, it's so yep. interesting when you look back at this. These results might not be 100% right because uh, some of the names are a bit odd, but um, you got fourth there. There was a fellow, Alexandra Manzan, who finished third. He was a very good ITU athlete. Ryan Bolton was second. Norman Stadler was one place behind. Behind you, and uh, you also had Olivier Marceau and Andrew Johns in the top ten. So, so out of that 10, 10 names there, you know, you know, a good six or so went on to have very, very good careers. So, when, when did you actually go on to, to to sort of start racing professionally? Well, that's actually that was sort of my. Um, I saw, luckily enough for me as an Australian in the nineties, we had such a, a great. The sport of triathlon was booming, and the the nineteen ninety one ITU triathlon world championships were on the Gold Coast. Mm. Um, won by Miles Stewart, um, 19-year-old Miles Stewart. But it was live on, on the ABC in Australia on television. I was a runner at the time who, who used to circle. I grew up on the beach. And I used to see these aquathons and stuff that were sort of coming into Australia at the time. And triathlon was around because Greg Welsh and McKeeley Jones came from this part of the world but had moved to America. Um, so there was a lot of discussion around triathlon, but it was a very different-looking landscape than it is that we, we enjoy today. And by chance, I came home on a, on a Sunday afternoon and I turned on the television and, and I, I, I popped right as they got out of the water in this in this swim at the ITU World Championships on the Gold Coast. And I sat there and thought I had no idea who Miles Stewart was, zero. All I was going for was the guy in the green and gold because he was an Australian against, you know, Rick Wells and, and, and Mike Pig and all these all these stars at the time. And I watched the most amazing sprint finish and, and Miles win the the gold medal and I thought this is the coolest sport I've ever seen the crowds were massive I was like oh, I need to do this and I literally in 1991 after that race saved up money went and bought myself a Repco Superlight push bike nice. and became a triathlete <laughs> became a triathlete I was like this is the sport for me it just seemed cool right I was coming from not that running wasn't cool but you know it was if you're running in Australia cross country at the time and I was sort of the Australian schoolboy running champion but it was like a couple of flags in a in an oval and you ran up through the, but they just didn't seem to have the, the, the atmosphere of, of this new dynamic sport of triathlon. So I sort of got involved then. I did my first, I did a few duathlons because swimming wasn't really a, you know, I thought I could swim, but when you dive in the water with people that have grown up swimming, you realize what you think you can do and what you actually can do with people who can do it is, is way off. And so I started doing a lot of duathlons in, in 92 and uh, sort of transitioned into triathlon late 1992 with the Daihatsu Triathlon Series here in Australia, which was an Olympic distance um, series um, that had all the best in Australia racing. And, and luckily for us, there was a junior development program sponsored by Cadbury's, of which Andrew Johns was a member, um, Rick Stapleton, um, Brett Riccini, a whole bunch of athletes. And at that point, the Kiwis used to come across here a lot. Mm. And a, and a guy from Auckland called Hamish Carter, who would go on to be one of my biggest nemesis in my career, came across and I'd never seen a guy ride a bike so so fast. I did a race and, and he, he, the juniors used to race the next wave after professionals. I saw him coming back this time. I went, man, that guy's unbelievable. And uh, it was just this, this this awe of this racing. And, and then I qualified, as you said, in 93 for the, my first Australian team was sort of the first time I got to represent the country as a triathlete. I'd been 18 months in the sport, still relatively um, off in the swim, but it was my bike and run was very, very strong. And luckily that event was in Manchester in the UK and, um, and it was a wetsuit swim. So I was able to 
stay close to the front, and, uh, and I nearly got away with winning it. But as you said, all those all those peers in that race ended up becoming peers of racing for me. But it was that's sort of how I fell into the sport. And and you know, despite all the social media and everything today, I, and maybe it was because I was younger at the time, it, it seemed to be a lot more of an aura around the stars and, and what they were doing because I think the sport was sort of very much um, had a very big wow factor to it. You know, it was even just an Olympic distance race. People were like, wow, that's, that's amazing what these guys can do. Now it's sort of been softened with, with um, the fact that so many people do it. You know? Back then it was, it was a definitely a lot more wow to it. And that sort of kept me motivated to do it. And, and you lived vicariously through magazines, um, which, which came out every month and, and followed the exploits of all athletes around the world. And at that point, to be truly honest, Ironman didn't really, there was about 10 Ironmans in the world, but it was really an afterthought to the big short course racing that come out of the Bud Light series in the US and, and what was happening in Australia and New Zealand and, and, the, and the French scene and these two amazing athletes in, in Spencer Smith and Simon Lessing who uh, basically were lighting the world on, on fire and became, became my idols because you know I knew about Brad Bevan, Miles Stewart and Greg Welsh in Australia and then and Hamish Carter, who in 1993 I'd seen race in Australia and then go on to get third in the World Championships in Manchester as a professional. Um, these guys were gods. And then I'd read the results of some of the races in France and they'd be seven minutes behind Simon Lessing and, yeah. and, and, and Spencer Smith. I'm like, who are they? Mate, these guys are next level. And all I wanted to do, all I, my whole life, was to get on an aeroplane and experience those races in France. That was my life. I had no interest in America. I had no interest in Ironman. I, I just wanted to get over there and, and, and do La Boule and, and, and Montpellier and, and all these events that now are probably insignificant to most people. But back then, when you just read the same magazine over and over and over again, you knew that you felt like you knew these courses inside out. And, and those guys really set the stage for a generation like myself and Greg Bennett to, to get on a, on a plane and, and get up to Europe. So I, I kind of want to go through the world champs sort of almost year by year, but when you were in that sort of early to mid-90s period when you were, you know, hot on it, was, um, you know, we, we often hear about the, the Bud Light series in, in America, but from from your opinion, were the, the great, the best athletes generally focused over in Europe or is it? Was it sort of split a little bit as we went to the nineties? I know in the eighties it was USAT and going into the nineties, but what where, where was the real heartbeat of the sport in the, in the sort of mid nineties? Uh, the, the talent was one hundred percent built out of out of Europe. Um, you know, it, 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 the transition you have to remember the first ever World Championships was eighty nine in Avignon. So by nineteen ninety three, it was only the fourth ever ITU World Championships. At, at that time, it was still non drafting. Nowadays, we see a draft legal. Racing that came in '95 in, in Cancun. I was there in '94 in, in Japan when when Juan Antonio Samaranch came over with the ITU president Les McDonald and watched an event there. And uh, we were trying to get triathlon in the Olympics. I was a young kid, and Hamish and all these superstars were there. And I vividly remember this. And, and Hamish, if you speak to him, will probably tell you we were sitting in a in a in a room. And Juan Antonio Samaranch, who was the IOC president, had come out to watch this event. And Les tells the story that we all went into the swim. It used to be a one big lap swim in, in Murakami. And um, it was 1,500 metres. And one's like, oh, wow, the, the start went. We all ran in. He's like, oh, what happens now? And uh, Les said, well, in 20 minutes, they're going to get out of the water and we'll, they'll do this transition and they'll go off on the bike. He's like, oh, okay. 20 minutes, 20 minutes later, we got out of the water and, 
this transition happened and Juan Antonio Samaranch was sitting there going, wow, this is great. What happens now? He said, well, in, in, what, in one hour, they're going to come back here and we're going to see who's leading, right? And so he's like, oh, okay. He waited an hour and we came back and the transition happened. He's like, oh, this is great. What happens now? Well, in 30 minutes, they're going to come back from the run and we see who wins the race. But we've got to check to make sure they don't get any drafting calls because the winner might necessarily be the winner because he could have made an infringement out on the course. And Juan said, this will never work. It needs to be draft legal and it needs to be loops. And the swim needs to be multiple laps. The bike needs to be multiple laps. If you want to get in the Olympics, change it. And to Les's credit, that day he came to all the athletes. I was a young guy. I had no say in it. And there was a whole bunch of athletes there that were big superstars, one of which was Simon Lessing, Amy Scarter, Brad Bevan was there, Miles Stewart was there. He said, we're going draft legal. That was in 1994. And Hamish Carter, who was the best bike rider, one of the best bike riders in the sport of triathlon at the time, said, well, there goes my bike riding. I'm just going to run. He went on to win the Olympics a few years later. But that was the transition and the change. So the 90s was a, was a, a transitional period because you saw this American Bud Light series was very, very much anti this ITU draft legal decision, right? So the Americans sort of shifted to that's not true triathlon. And the Europeans went this, okay, we're going to go draft legal. So Spencer Smith, who was definitely, he was a 93, 94 world champion, one of the great non-drafting triathletes of all time, opted to leave Europe and move to the States. Simon Lessing stayed in Europe in the French racing. And, and that's where the split in those two series came. And I think you saw this emergence of, without question, the, the most gifted generation of, of European triathletes we've ever seen um, come out of that of, out of that shift. And I think it was the, it was the right shift for the sport. And, um, and the Americans, because of the way we communicated through media back then, they owned all the magazines and that. So we still hung on to, the, to what was happening around, you know, seven or eight years earlier, which was Mark Allen, who were great athletes and they were still winning in Kona and, and, and Scott Molina and, and these great athletes. But they really missed some of the greatest athletes of all time you 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 have seen in Simon Lessing and Brad Bevan and in, uh, in, 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 in you remember Jules Rabul and all these French guys in Olivier Marceau and, and and what they were doing in 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 Europe it was it was out of this world and uh, and that's where I wanted to get because I used to read up about that I was like I want to go over to Europe and and race because it just seemed to me to have a lot more you know there was hilly events. There was there was flat events. There was events on the ocean. There was events in lakes. There was it just seemed to be a more versatile athlete that came, and and you you saw that change when they did the first world championships in Cancun in 1995, the first ever draft legal world championships, and it was won by uh, Simon Lessing with Brad Bevan second, and um, it was the beginning of that draft legal element of racing. Was um, did you guys consider the world championships each year? to be the pinnacle, we'll go through the world champs sort of year on year in a second, but was that, how important was the world championships as, as you sort of went through the 90s? Because these days it's kind of like, it's another race, it's double points, it's a finale, but was the world champs the biggest, big deal of the year for you guys, or was it, yeah, it's important, but I've got lots of other fish to fry as well. Oh, the world championships was it. Like, I mean, I, I the world championships was the biggest, all anyone prepared for, it's sort of, I guess, to some degree, what Kona's become today in in, uh, in the psyche of of the modern triathlete, but the ITU World Championships, I can tell you every champion, I can tell you top ten. Like uh, it was the most important race in the world, and I think, unfortunately for the ITU, I understand why they did it, but I think there's a there's a level of importance around race day execution, and this is why. And moving to a series kills that off, and I think 
the WTS series the way it is now. It, it's killed off that 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 ability or that need for an athlete to perform on a race day, and and that's what the '90s was. So, you know, you you prepared. You had a World Cup series, which was important. World number one to be world number one was relatively important to win the Juan Antonio Samaranch World Cup series, um, which is what basically the WTS is today. Was important, you know. Brad Bevan won four of them. You know, we we talk about it a lot. He never won a world championships, but he won four for the World Cup series. But to to execute on a world championships, it was the best. And I I, I guess now I'm seven years retired. I, I look back, and what's his pride of place in my house? And ain't the Ironman? Well, so it's my it's my ITU World Championship because to me it was the most important race on the planet for me to win because I believed the best in the business were at it. And not that, that in, in, in Ironman, that's not the case, but I, I felt you had to be fast, slick, quick, everything at the fire perfectly for you to win that race. And you had one chance to do it. You know, the Olympics has become that now at the, at the, at the IT level, but it was so important. And, and that's why you really have to look at athletes like Simon Lessing and, and even the Spencer Smiths that, that were able to win it so many times. Like how good they were and yet, in in the history of our sport, and yet how under-rejoiced they are as as, as stars of, of triathlon, it's just remarkable. So if we, if we look at sort of year, years through the 90s, in 1990, it was in Orlando. We had a bloody Australian clean sweep with Greg Welsh, Brad yep. Bevan, and and, uh, and Foster as well. And and then the and fo- Luke Van Lied got fourth. Did he? <laughs> Luke Van Lied got fourth. <laughs> and, and then the following year, we had um, Aussies again taking it out with Miles Stewart. And if, this footage is on um, YouTube if you want to go and look at it. Look at the 1991 World Championships on the Gold Coast. And uh, it comes down to a, the long, an extremely long sprint finish. Uh, and you don't know which way it's going to go, but it was a brilliant race. So, but, but then we really started an era of sort of Simon Lessing and Spencer Smith. So you will race those guys quite a few times. Um, they were very different athletes. So maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, their strengths and maybe their weaknesses that um, that you tried to exploit when you were racing them. I think the difficult thing when you when you you're exactly right. 1992, Simon Lessing won the the IT World Championships in Muskoka ahead of um, Raina Mueller, I think. Yeah, that was, no, was yeah, Raina Mueller. Mueller and, and I think Lisa was there. And, um, yeah, no, Lessing. That Lessing won the Lessing won the pros, the, yeah, the, the elite race. Yeah, but, but the Spencer won the juniors that year in 1992. Cameron Brown got a bronze medal or a silver medal um, in the, the junior race. So we we wait. We I remember sitting in Australia wanting to know those results, right? And I remember seeing and Spencer Smith. I'd seen and a lot of my junior friends here had raced him. He was the favourite to win the junior event on the Gold Coast. There was a lot of talk around this this amazing Brit. That was super powerful, and he and he failed on the Gold Coast. He didn't win. A, a guy called Eric Millimackey from Canada won the juniors that day. And then he delivered on the uh, in in Muskoka. So you had these two UK champions that were completely opposite of each other and didn't like each other, right? And they're only three years apart in age, but they and and if you watch the old footage, I've got it somewhere on a VHS video. You see um, Simon Lessing do an interview after he won, and they they asked him about Spencer Smith, and he was very very. You know, politically correct, but you could see there was a there was a little bit of uh, tension between these two athletes. And we didn't. You got to see them race a little bit the following year. They did an amazing event in, in Finland and uh, some amazing races. And then '93 was the big showdown, and that's why I was more. I think I was more ecstatic to to qualify for the Australian team, not because I wanted to race 
the junior worlds was I got the opportunity to see Spencer Smith, who was still a junior. He was my age, but he had opted to not race juniors that year because he wanted to take on Simon Lessing in the English World Championships of ITU racing. And the crowds were out of this world back then. I I think it was different crowd controls. You know, people used to be able to hang on the streets. And I recall the junior race happening and we rode from Bolton and we finished in Manchester and then we got to wait for the pro race. So we've finished our event. We've all got changed. We're waiting for the pros to come into town. And uh, I remember the helicopter above um, the the city of Manchester and in came Spencer Smith and and uh, he's roared into transition. He's, he's basically put his helmet off and tossed it to the crowd just because of the energy of this <laughs> I place. That <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was like 80,000 people in Manchester. I'm like, oh, my God, it's Spencer Smith. And then he roared out of town. His father, Bill Smith, was just a, a massive personality running after his son. Go, oh boy. And, um, and we waited and waited and waited. And, and minutes later, actually, next in was Hamish Carter, who was, as I said, one of the greatest bike riders the sport's ever seen. He never gets credit for it. And uh, then in came Simon Lessing and, and Brad Bevan, Ben Bright, a, b- a big group of them. But Spencer shut this event down and, and dominated. And what happened, he won. Simon Lessing finished second. And it was the first defeat of Simon Lessing by Spencer, but it was at the World Championship. So if any time you're going to beat Simon, you beat him at the biggest race that matters. Well, there was a protest put on by the French because Spencer had thrown his, his uh, helmet to the oh, crowd saying, really? yep, yeah, a protest put in that he should be disqualified. And this is, not many people know this about Simon Lessing. These guys hated each other, disliked each other. And um, Simon Lessing, to his credit, and I was there because I'd become friends with Spencer because he was my age and Spencer was more my cup of tea. Uh, we, we, we're, we're still close friends to this day. Um, the protest went through and Simon Lessing said, if, if Spencer Smith doesn't win this world championship, I'm not taking it. I'm not getting up on the podium. He won the race fair and square. He's not getting DQ'd for dropping his helmet. It's not happening. I will not take a world championship this way. And wouldn't stand up there. And 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 the, and the protest was squashed. And Simon and Spencer went on to take that world championship. So it was a uh, an amazing era. And now now that was the last of '94. They went to Wellington. And he just, um, Smith just crushed everybody again. Crushed him on, on the rider bike. Remember yeah. that ugly bike he rode? Yeah, yeah. And but that. But that, if, you, if you speak to Spencer, he moved that year from Europe to the States because halfway through 94 in Murakami was when Simon, when Les McDonald, the story I just told you, said we're going to be draft legal in 95. So Spencer's like, this sucks. I'm moving to the States with the Chicago's and all these big events that live there. And he had a really, really bad year in 94, like a really, really terrible year in, in, in this transition out of his comfort zone in Europe to now living in a new place and trying to find his way around America. It's a, it's a transition can be hard for people. And basically, they were going home. They were going to run out of money and sponsorship. But he won that World Championships. And this is when you talk about the importance of a World Championships. It saved his career because it was the biggest race. It'd be like winning winning nothing all year and winning Kona again. It's like, oh, he's back. And, and that's what he did in, in New Zealand. But that was the last we saw of, of, of Spencer Smith in, in uh, ITU racing because 95 was rough legal from that point on and, and the whole transition changed. And, and to, to Simon Lessing's credit, his ability to race both non-drafting races and then transition to to draft legal racing is testament to how good he was. Like there was many that couldn't make that transition across. I look at if you look at my junior worlds when I was through, Norman Stadler couldn't make that transition. He ended up becoming one of the great Ironman athletes of all time. But go through that list of athletes, many of them couldn't transition, couldn't do both draft legal and, and, and non-drafting. And 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 that was a very we lost a lot of it became the new look triathlete to some degree. That big strong 
strength athlete um, that used to win triathlons became obsolete, you know, and, and this new wiry, lean, running, thin triathlete became the new norm. And, and that 90s was sort of that transitional period where you saw a mix of those athletes that you just don't see now. If you look at the ITU racing, they all look a very certain way. So sort of through the mid-90s, Lessing was, you know, crushing it. Whenever he showed up on the World Cup circuit, um, he was a force to be reckoned with, but he was off doing a lot of French Iron Tour and doing doing different races. So he wasn't really a consistent factor. And in my recollections of the 90s, in terms of the circuit, there was was lots of different winners. You know, often it was Brad Bevan winning races or possibly Hamish Carter. Yourself was in the mix there as well as we sort of got into more of the, the later 90s. But it seemed through that period on the circuit there was lots of different winners quite often. Um, but Lessing was, was pretty much the man when it came to, to the World Championships pretty much up until 1997 when you, uh, when you got the crown. Was he still you know, regarded as the, the guy to beat pretty much every race? And who else was, was big concerns for you? Oh, he was, he was, despite the lack of racing at that ITU level, and, and he was very much focused on, on that, as you said, that French Grand Prix Iron Tour racing. He, he tended to race less. He was with a, with a team called Assistem, um, which was a nuclear power plant, a, a, a big, powerful, powerful team in, in France, and they were very focused on French racing. He, he'd pop in and out of the, of the ITU racing at the time because in 1997, the Olympic points came in. That was the first year of Olympic qualification because we're now going to the Sydney Games. And so, 96, he wasn't around a lot. There was a, a series called the ITGP, which was yeah. an extension of, sort of, what, of what Super League is doing right now, right? It was the beginning of trying to transition this race that we did in Australia to the world. Um, it, it got shut down by the ITU at that time, only because, um, you know, we just got in the Olympics, and I think Les felt threatened that if he couldn't show that he owned, Les was the, the ITU president, if you don't know, um, if he couldn't show that he could control the sport at that Olympic level, he may we may get fall out of the Olympics. So I, I do, in some instances, understand why he was so so adamant in shutting that down. Um, so you lost in '96 a lot of the athletes in that ITGP series, including Lessing, including Smith, including a lot of them. And, and so that '96, which was sort of my first pro year, it was won by Miles Stewart, and uh, the World Championship still that year in Cleveland was won by Simon Lessing. But it was sort of a a, a, a half race series because a lot of the good guys were racing. 97 was the first year of them all coming back. and uh, But without question, any athlete you spoke to at the time, Simon Lessing was the standard. And, and actually, he was above the standard. We were all – he was remarkable. There was nothing he couldn't do. He had a, an aura about him that was – you know, I called it arrogance, but it was – knowing him now, was as much a nervousness about his ability and, and this, this insidious – winning that he'd done, that he, that he got consumed in his own um, fear of losing, I guess, that he used to project it out and, and be so frightening. Like, oh, there's never been an athlete I was more intimidated by in my life. And I learned so much from him because of the way he intimidated me. And he was, without question, the gold standard. Um, Hamish Carter was, in my opinion, the, the, the most gifted triathlete of that era. Um, he, was, he didn't race a lot. He used to try and prepare a lot out of, out of New Zealand. But he was so consistent, had a remarkable swing, had such a big run, um, and we all knew he could ride a bike. He just opted to to trade out some of that bike strength to build his run up, and uh, he was super, super consistent. Um, Olivia Marceau at the time, depending on the course, could do amazing things. Um, Greg Bennett was very, very powerful. There was a young guy called Craig Walton who was coming along who, who was... <laughs> 
the, it was the new standard in swimming and was doing so much stuff off the front with a, with a French guy called Benjamin Sanson. Um, so it was this, you know, to, to appreciate the different athletes, you needed to, you, you do need to appreciate this transition from non-drafting to draft legal racing because, you know, you, you had these, these front racing athletes that were now trying to get together and work out of teams and, and how to stay away. And you had these super runners that had never been in the mix that were suddenly thrust into the, into the forefront of racing, like a Dimitri Gag, who went on to win a world championship, who sucked at, at swimming and, and biking. <laughs> Right, but used to get carried, on. and that was the way the sport was going. So there was a lot of frustration, but it it, it's, it really found its feet, you know, probably around two thousand two, two thousand three. But that transition in this sport was was important and remarkable. And and as you said, the athlete that shone the brightest was Simon Lessing, and 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 to some degree, I think when you look at Simon's career, his his world championship ships were remarkable. What he did in France, you never read about, and there wasn't social media now was. Some of the races I saw him do there were just mind blowing, and um, and I, I think he probably you know, Simon Whitfield is one of my best friends, but I I think he probably missed winning that Olympics in Sydney through his fear of racing in the end because he was this big superstar. He didn't race enough of the circuit. And I don't think he appreciated what was happening with this transition and these new athletes who were coming, the Whitfields and the Gags and the and the Bukovics and the Rahulas and these new style of triathletes. That yeah, maybe eight years earlier wouldn't have been as competitive, but the sport had changed, and he wasn't truly appreciating how quickly that change was happening, and he got exposed at the Sydney Olympics, unfortunately, maybe just, um, by the new gentleman. Maybe just mention a little bit about Dimitri Gag because he was on my list to, to, to ask you about, and I kind of love and hate hate relationship. No, no, not that I've got a relationship with him, but he's the most unathletic looking person, and and I kind of put myself in that boat with my big bloody hairy chest, and I haven't got any abs or anything like that. But he won world title and he got medals as well. So to his credit, he he did bloody well. But he, he would never. A lot of people would never consider him a great. But when you got a world title, um, tell us a little bit about him and if if you did actually get to know him, if you spoke any English. I, I actually got on well with with Dirty Dimitri. To be honest <laughs> with you, I I, I I I met him in Hungary in Tiziwivaros, and he, his English was. I think he was always an outsider because his English was very very poor. And um, and he has an amazing story. He's from he's from Kazakhstan, and uh, and he he actually had to leave Kazakhstan and move to Hungary because he became a semi star and he would land he would win this money in track money land in Kazakhstan and the the mafia there would take his money off him. Oh really? So he, he, yeah yeah. So he, he moved to Hungary so he could protect some of his money and and um, so he. he he, he, and he came from nothing, right? So you, you realize there was this, and, and it's great that you talk about Dimitri and, and Rahulas and these guys, and the, and, and because they came, from, there was the beginning of this Eastern group of athletes had never really been in triathlon before, from you know the Kazakhstans, the Russians, that the, started to come in a big way, and uh, and and the draft legal racing with the big packs, and and they hadn't refined the courses yet, um, made things come relatively easy with their weakness being their bike skills and suddenly you had there was no sort of control in the beginning they hadn't really gone through the process the itu of 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 refining race starts basically a team could send 10 athletes and so suddenly so i remember standing on some of the start lines there's 150 guys in the race i'm like man so everyone these packs were huge and, and guys like dimitri were able to fight their way through and become become stars he won the 1999 world championships in canada he outkicked simon lessing who had it won you know, he was uh, when he was on in the run. Dimitri was unstoppable. 
Um, he was uh, he was remarkable, um, but he was sort of he was either on or off, and uh, and he, he didn't really have a lot to do with him. But he always sort of had this semi smile. Nobody tended to you know he was always the the bruck, the brunt the bunt of what do you call it the the bunt of people's jokes because of his English. But um, I think overall he, he he played an impact. If he was in if he was in the in a race, you definitely looked at Dimitri Gard because uh, if you know, I mean, many a time I'd be with Hamish in a in a front group, and Dimitri was at thirty seconds. Suddenly there was some urgency to to keeping him off the back because you knew what he could do on the run. And and as I said, those those new runners of which Simon Whitfield was one, of which uh, Jan Rahula was one, of which Dimitri was one, uh, Philip Fattori, these sort of athletes who won World Cup events. Uh, became very, very dangerous. And even a, a Peter Robinson, who came the end of the 90s and, and uh, in, into the new millennial, they were very, very dangerous with their big runs. And uh, you had to, this, all this tactics came in. But Dimitri was a, was a good one, a very, very good athlete. A couple of other names I'll sort of throw out there. Brad Bevan, I mean, I, I generally think most people say he's the greatest athlete never to win a, a world championship. Would you kind of uh, agree with that one? I know Hamish didn't win one either, but he got the Olympics, so that does yeah. kind of trumps that. But would you consider Brad possibly the best never to win? Yeah, without question. Without question. But Brad, Brad, you know, we didn't see the best of Brad. Brad came through that late 80s, early 90s. So that, that transitional period, he struggled with a little bit. Um, but he was, for any Australian, I think if you spoke to myself or a Greg Bennett or a Chris Hill or any of those ITU guys racing back then, um, Brad Bevan was the standard we all aspired to be. He was the best. Why, why, why was he so good? He was the fittest athlete we'd ever seen. He was the most reserved and, and um, kept to himself so semi, probably the most professional, uh, whether it was professional or whether it was just that he kept to himself. Um, and he was a winner. He just won. He he knew how to execute on race day, and, and that's that's the art of of any sport. You know, it's not about nowadays. It seems to be about what you put up on Instagram and stuff. But back then, it was about what you did on what you did on race day. And that guy, man, and and he, like a lot of the the victories of these athletes, we don't rejoice because they're not they're not really talked about. You know, a lot of those French Grand Prix. Johnny, you were there. You saw these guys doing these races. There's some of the best races triathlons ever seen. And Brad Bevan was in the mix of those for a decade and, and at the cutting edge of the new generation. And, and, and what was great about Brad, I, 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 his ability to be a, a team player in the Australian team, other members weren't, right? and to be open and, 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 and even though he wanted the same goal, I'll tell you a perfect story. In 97, when, when I won the world championships and Brad Bevan was my idol, my absolute idol, and I knew he wanted to win a world title. He, he got second what, three times. And um, and I sat in the recovery tent. I've just won the Worlds, and he's in the Australian massage tent, and he was lying next to me. And um, I sat down. I had the thing. I said, oh, um, Brad's like, oh, congratulations. I said, oh, oh, thanks, man. Sorry. Sorry it wasn't you. He's like, Chris, you never, ever, ever apologize for winning a world championship. <laughs> never. But it was just he was my idol, like, and I knew. And, and, and but just the, the power in which he delivered that to me was like, I just wanted it to be him. I didn't want it to be him, but I knew how much he wanted it, and I respected and and and, and loved him so much. I guess as an athlete, and and then as a person, that I I just wish I could have shared it with him. And uh, he was just he was just that type of guy, and he brought he brought so much to the Australian team with his experience, with his with his demeanour. That um, I think he was a big part of why Australia was so successful in that period of time because of his work ethic, 
a standard. Everybody tried to live up to that, and and it and and it brought everybody along with him. Perhaps yeah. a couple couple other names. Um, Ralph Eggert, he got several medals yeah. at the World Championship, but he's not a name that I often think put in greatness. But when you get a medal at a World Championship in that era, that was a pretty big deal. So um, was he much of a factor? He got, I think, I might be wrong. I think he was third in '92 and third in '95. So he won. Um, he was '92 was non-drafting, and and '95 was um, was draft legal. Ralph was a uh, one of those strong, he, strong, strong athletes. Was always there. He was a sort of an opportunist. I wouldn't call him an opportunist in the sense, but it was basically he fed off other people faltering, which is why he always tended to get third or fourth or fifth. So he wasn't a he was a guy that you knew you had covered. But you better not go out too hard and pop because he'd eat you up. He'd go straight over the top of you. So if you know, you know those guys who just sit yeah. there. Shane Reed, Shane Reed was another athlete like that to some yeah. degree. Very, very strong. Always there, feeding off that fifth and sixth place, and got the third because they were always there. Right? And um, and Ralph was yeah. You, you look at his. He got two two medals at the world championships. Um, mate, you, you're there. As I said, they're. they're Back in the day, that was it. You know, that was the most important important medal to have um, in anyone's anyone um, trophy cabinet. Final two names I've got on here is uh, the, the Brazilians, Alexander. Uh, what was it? Manzan and uh, Manzan and, Manzan and, and Sado. Yeah, uh, Manzan was a junior with me. One of my uh, uh, one of the funnest guys to ever be on the circuit with. Just an absolute uh, uh, absolute waste of talent to some degree. <laughs> <laughs> He was a Brazilian. He was a good style of guy. He was a little bit like a Benji Sanson. Um, and he he just his run was ridiculously powerful. I think we saw if you look at the '95 ITU World Cup series, both Leandro Macedo and Alexandra Manzan led that series for the whole season. I think they might have won it in '95, and um, and they did it with these big runs, right? And uh, but they 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 both had swim weaknesses that with time were exploited and um, they were shut down very, very quickly. Leandro was sort of by the mid-90s getting quite old, um, but Alex was a junior with me. And he, we, we sort of lost Alex to the party scene, then he would come back and then he'd go back out again and come back. But the sport was becoming very, very professional. With Once you get into the Olympics, federations come in and, and, and that whole change was happening and the refinement of the sport happened. That, that sort of early 90s, semi-party area that was sort of part and parcel of the IT World Cup racing started to dry up a lot. Some people say for the for the, the worst, some people say for the benefit. Um, and, and Alex never transitioned out of that, that nightclub scene post-event and, and uh, we, we sort of lost him to that. And, and, and you know, we, we lost a lot of good athletes to that without question because it was part and parcel of triathlon racing through the 80s and, and early 90s. So, so if you had to name a top five, and you could put yourself oh, hold on, oh, you look at one more. You can, you can do that in a second, but just then one more yourself. Obviously, we didn't talk about '97. You winning the world title there, and you were a big player um, through most of the '90s. You know, when you're looking at a start lineup, you go, okay, right, Mac is here, Hamish Carter's here, Brad Bevan's here. Sort of, sort of game on. You're always mentioned in that mix, but that that world title you, you got must have been amazing, and to, to beat Simon Lessing must have been the, the most incredible thing. Um, as you said, it seems to you, come you want to be the best, don't you? Yeah, I, 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 I can't believe it was twenty years ago because I, I remember the the emotion. It's, it's, it's twenty two, mate. Twenty two. Twenty two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> twenty two years. Yeah. But I, I seriously, I, 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 um, you know, Simon Lessing was in my 
you know, I, I raced Simon, and I've got this in my diary. I raced Simon 26 times in my life. I beat him four, wow. right? He was remarkable, right? And, and, and my issue, my problem in that era was as a transition, I was never a super swimmer. I wasn't a Hamish Carter. I wasn't. So I could get exploited very, very quickly. If I missed the group, they quickly realized I had a big run on me. I could ride very well. But if I wasn't in that group, you had guys like Craig Walton and Hamish Carter and then these sort of guys up front that would shut that down very, very quickly and, and lock you out of the game. So um, in, the, in the late, in 96, I made the transition across to swim with one of Australia's big swim coaches, which was very swim heavy, which is probably not swim heavy nowadays when you look at what the ITU guys are doing. But at that point, it was considered very, very swim heavy and I had to get my swim up. And we had a focus on an Australian World Championships in Perth because um, it was home. I could prepare at home with a swim coach and, and, and do all those sort of things. So for me, it was what, what makes that race so special was I, I led the, I won the opening two rounds of the World Cup Series that year and then I pulled in with the next three and then I sort of took a break in the middle of the season got obliterated right and but it was at the at the because the world championships was the first week in november that year um my coaches were like you need to take a break in the middle of the year which is hard because that's where you want to be racing the europeans right you want to be in the mix so we took a break in the middle of 97 and basically went on a holiday had some fun and and then came back to the, the few races in bermuda um and i sort of got a podium there and then i came back to australia 10 weeks before worlds to prep and um and it was watching what all the other athletes were doing and and then we used to have a race in sydney which became it was the olympic course i went and did that race out of mechanical and hamish carter did an absolute number on the field he obliterated everybody and you got to see the form guide only three weeks before that craig walton decimated everybody at this noosa triathlon and guys like paul amy and and miles was showing his form and all these guys i'm like oh no i hadn't raced I was like, man, I haven't, I, like, and so you start to second guess whether you'd made the right decision. And uh, for me, I, I, I used to get myself in these states, I guess we've talked about it before on your show. I used to have to work myself up to, to this almost this paranoid schizophrenic that every, the whole world was against me because that made me get out and work. And I, and I remember coming across, I opted not to stay with the Australian team, which wasn't really, wasn't seen as the right thing to do by many of the Australian team. Um, I'd had a few issues with a breakup with a girlfriend and then one of the members on the team. So it was, uh, all this stuff was happening, but it, it all fed this, this desire to, to do something big. And I went across to my mother and father and why this race is so important to me was I was fourth out of the water. So all that had paid off. You know, I, I came out, I remember starting the swim going, mate, I felt like sitting with Simon Lessing and I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I had his hip and then I sat back and I swam with Hamish Carter and got out of the water, and then on the bike, I was so used to attacking to catch up the, the deficit. I usually had 15 or 20 seconds back in the swim. I attacked the first lap of the bike, and that split the field up, and a group of us were able to get away. In that group was Miles Stewart, Hamish Carter, Simon Lessing, um, Laurent Jean-Selm. Um, there was another French, I think both, the Bignet, one of the Bignet brothers. Um, there was about seven of us, uh, Greg, yeah, Greg Bennett. There were seven of us off the front, and uh, we shut the whole race down. And then it became a running race. And, I, and I'll be honest with you, I ran out of transition. And I'm, having watched, and you would have remembered Simon, what Simon, how Simon Lessing used to win his events was he would set such an amazing pace for the first 5K. He just ran everybody off their feet. So I knew if I got a really quick transition, I set an amazing pace out of, out of transition, that by the time he caught up to me, maybe, just maybe, because you 
I'd never only beaten him once before this. Um, I could hang with him. And I, and, and I remember thinking, and regardless of that, it's live on Australian television. Oh, it'd be cool to be leading, it'd be cool to be leading the world championships. It's funny all the stuff you think, because you don't ever think you're going, you always dream of winning, but uh, when it's actually happening, you question whether it's going to happen. You try and stay in the moment. And, uh, yeah, I roared out of transition and I got to the two and a half K marker and I saw, and everyone was giving me splits to Simon 15 seconds and then the next split would be, Oh, 12 seconds. I'm like, oh, here he comes. The next bit was 15 seconds. I'm thinking, oh, he's not coming as quickly as I thought. And then when we sort of made the turn, it was two and a half K out, two and a half K back, two 5K loops. And I mean, massive crowds back then. There was no barricades. They used to run like the Tour de France through people. And um, and then suddenly I got a split 15 seconds to Hamish Carter. And I'm like, what's going on? Because you don't know what's happening behind you. So I had to wait till the 5K marker to see where what was going on behind because he couldn't, he didn't know what was happening. And I made the turn and I saw Hamish in front of Simon Lessing, which was just not Simon. And I realized Simon is so used to being a front runner that when he wasn't in that position, it was foreign to him. And suddenly Hamish was threatening him and people were, were, were coming over the top of me. He wasn't making an impression on what was happening up in front. And uh, I thought, well, man, I've raced. When, when I look at my Palomars with Hamish, Hamish is a guy I think I can outrun. You know, suddenly if he's, if he's got the better of, Simon, Simon's not having a day. So suddenly you, you start to think, shit, this is becoming real. This is the world championships. This is, this is all, it's not about being on television anymore. This could actually happen. <laughs> so then you just, you commit to the, to that last 5k. And I, I, I vividly remember coming through and, and I just closing my eyes thinking, mate, I've, you know, Greg Walsh, Miles Stewart. And I remember thinking, Mark Allen, Greg Walsh in 1990, Miles Stewart, 91. Yeah, Chris McCormack, you're going to be on the list of the biggest. Come on! And I, I, when I made the turn, I glanced back over my shoulder, and it was, um, and I had about 12 seconds on Hamish, and it was, and I knew I had a one. I, I broke down. I, I cried the whole last hundred meters of that run, and the first person to see me was my mum and dad. And it's an it's an important story because my father was always disappointed in me that I moved across to t- pursue sport as a career. You know, I was a, I was in banking and, uh, and, and he was disappointed that I left my job at Bankers Trust to, to pursue this career and move to Europe. And so he was there to watch this race in Perth with my mum. So they greeted me, greeted me at the finish line and, and, and my mum was in tears and it was the last race she ever watched me race. Oh, wow. and, and my father was so proud. And I said, dad, this is what I do. You know, this is, this is my job. And like, it was, he's like, I've never been so proud of you in my life, son. Never. Like, it's the, and then to see Hamish come across and Simon come across. It was the greatest, greatest day, still to this day, I get goosebumps of my life because I'd, it was the event, you know, sure, Ironman was the event that sparked my interest in triathlon, but the athletes that inspired me outside of the Mark Allen, but the athletes and my peers that inspired me and still to this day, I have the utmost respect for because I went to so many more wars with them. Were the Hamish Carters, the Simon Lessings, the Olivia Marceau's, the Alexandra Manzans, the Dimitri Gags, the Greg Bennett's, the Craig Walton's, the the Paul Amy's, the Jamie Hunt's, the these guys are my peers, and these guys grew up in this changing guard of the '90s, which is where we see the sport today. And to win and have those peers see you win, it's it's important. And 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 to to you know, I still do to glance down the list. It'd be 22 years ago. And to see the names of the guys around me who are my idols, yeah, um, pretty awesome, uh, it? it's it's pretty cool. Like oh, I, and, unbelievable! And it's, it's for me. 
for me, it's the greatest win of my career, and it, it's its pride of place. And 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 for me, the Hamish Carter is the my greatest racing rival ever. And 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 for him to be so close um, means means it makes it even more to share the podium with Simon, the great Simon Lessing, Hamish Carter. And and myself is it's the greatest podium shot of my life. Okay, here's a hard question: top five of the nineties, and you put yourself in it if you think you're in there. So, like top five men, sprint or uh, short course of the nineties. Where you go? Um, top five: Simon Lessing, um, Hamish Carter. Um, um, the, the next three are difficult. It's hard to put. You have to have Spencer Smith, wouldn't you? Spencer, yeah, Spencer to. Some degree, yeah. um, you've got to give it to him because he's two world championships, I guess. Because, uh, but he was the early nineties; he yeah. sort of transitioned out. Um, so, give, yeah, give Spencer number three. I would, um, I would put, you know, maybe a a, a, a group of a, a group of Australians in there. <laughs> team Australia uh, four. <laughs> team, team Australia, because you had Greg oh, Bennett, yeah. who who was remarkable, like very very consistent race. Okay, never won a world championship. You had Brad Bevan. Who has to be in there, right? Um, actually, I'm going to put Brad Bevan fourth. Clearly, yeah, yeah. actually, that's and then fifth is Team Australia. Yeah, um, basically because I, I couldn't. Yeah, I won a world championship, but at any day, it was a day, right? I, I won seven World Cups. So did so did so did Craig Walton. So did Greg Bennett. So did like as you said, at any day there was so many guys in that mix, but they were all from down here in in Australia, New Zealand, because. It was the competitive nature of having the Brad Bevins, the Greg Walshers, the Hamish Carters, all these guys. And we used to race down here back then. That series happened. So I would race Hamish in the Australian summers. And so that really fed this this amazing influx of racing from this part of the world that came into Europe that we just don't see anymore because that, that racing doesn't happen anymore. So a lot of the Australians are not actually preparing Europe now for the season. Um, we used to come home a lot more than they do now. So it, it was just a different era. So I, I'll, I'll call Team Australia yeah. five. No, I reckon that's good. My... I, I agree with that top five. It's good. Awesome, Maka. We love, yeah, we love, love it, talking mate. to you. Love it. What talk, an awesome interview, mate. Talk to you for hours. Yeah. And um, we'll talk to you again uh, sometime soon. And keep doing what you're doing, mate. You're, you're doing great Thanks, work. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Take care. Awesome, awesome mate. mate. Anything you want to add to that, John? Look, I think when we had the, the end of that interview, we were sort of you, you put him on the spot to try to come up with the, with the, the top five, and we I think Macca and I both agree, but it was a bit of a cop out at the end saying Team Australia was in fifth place, but I can't overemphasize that that's I still think this is that, that's an appropriate answer. There were so many good Australians. I can't remember, so long ago, I can't remember the five. We, we, we went. We, went, we, didn't, we, didn't, we had had Lessing and, and Smith. So Lessing was one. Greg um, Bevan was three. Uh, and then it was there was Smith, Bevan, and and, he went Carter, didn't he? And he went Carter, and then he said himself along with Team Australia uh, taking it out in terms of the fifth place. There was there was probably you know five to ten guys. Uh, that were good enough to win races and often you go to events and so the top 15 there might be six or seven Australians they were so good and there was just so so many of them uh, they had the Formula One gig in Australia a lot of them then would go off and, and race in Europe for, for clubs uh, and just it was just both on the males and female sides they were just absolutely killing it guys like Chris Hill which you, a lot of you will have never heard of before we talked about Craig Walton um, but there was just a whole Shane Reid there was a whole host of them that would not always win a races but, but be, be in contention or, or get, a, get on the podium question I have for you when you were younger was your aim to go to Australia and race in those races? Um, 
I just wasn't that good. <laughs> That's okay. the thing. Um, but in terms of the people that I looked up to, you certainly looked up to the Australians going, Jesus, you're the, you're the business. And when I was going through, uh, and, and, and back in the, so my, my sort of time when I was really into it was I started in 91 and then I was racing junior stuff in the mid 90s until about 96 I went to Worlds the second time and then 98, 99 and then I was racing in France so that was through the 90s was when you know, I was really absorbed in it yep. um, high school, university etc um, back then it was all ITU couldn't have told, probably couldn't even told you who won the Hawaii Ironman. Oh, really? Nobody cared. You had the odd person. This is again. I'm looking at this from a Christchurch perspective. You had the odd person that would go into Ironman. You're like, you're a bit weird. Oh, really? Uh, it was Ironman really didn't register that much. And so for us, it was ITU. So you're watching Brad Bevan, you're watching Hamish Carter, and just absorbed in it. Who are it's, your favourites? Like, like we, we've got the best, but who are the athletes that you're like? Oh, he's my hero. Oh, absolutely. Lessing and and Spencer Smith. So what was Carter was, uh, you, you wouldn't... But being a Kiwi, I thought he would Oh, you know, I loved, loved Hamish Carter, and he was fantastic. And uh, if, the, if there had been more non-drafting races, he would have done a lot better. Yep. He was he was an axe on the bike, and we saw that in, in Be- uh, not Beijing, in, uh, in Athens. Uh, so back then, the ITU coverage, it was often Hamish Carter versus Spencer Smith. Uh, no, versus Brad Bevan, and Brad Bevan almost always had the better of him. Yep. Um, but when it came to world champs, just watching Spencer Smith and and Lessing, it was uh, it was impressive. They were just beasts. Here's a question for you: When you're watching 2004 Olympics and you got Carter and Bevan, mm. break away from the field. You've got the Greek Greek guy there as well, but you kind of he wasn't a strong runner, was he? Uh, Sven Reader, yep. Uh, he, yeah, no, yeah. You, you kind of knew the Kiwi was going to take it, didn't you? Mm. Well, so, yeah. There was Andrew Johns was also on the breakaway as well. Oh, okay. Mm. What happened to him? I don't remember. He him. kind of just faded. He he must have worked extremely hard to stay up on the bike. Okay, and it kind of blew him. What were you, who were you thinking was going to take it? Uh, yeah, it was very 50-50. Very 50-50. Bevan had the form. Uh, Hamish had the sort of... Experience. The, the experience and probably the bigger endurance space. Yeah. So, yeah, it was very 50-50. Yeah. You, didn't, you, you went like, oh, I think Bevan's got this. Or well, I probably wanted Bevan to win it a little bit more. Because you're just a mate, yeah. yeah. Um, but still pretty happy with the result. Oh, it was <laughs> best to have a New Zealand triathlon ever, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, John, um, okay, let's wrap the show up. So let's do some patrons. Cam, a magic man, handsome. We've got Andrew, too smooth, Maud. And Evan, despicable me, Collier. If you want to become a patron of the show, dub, 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 iamtalk.me. It's all on the website. Support the boys and what we do. Come to Kona Office if you win the entry and just, you know, become an important part of our community. Uh, if you want to get some coaching, go to coachjohnnewson.com. Check out my podcast, bevanjamesisles.com. Also, email us content, imtalkpodcast at gmail.com. If you do want to get any of my uh, race coverage in terms of files or anything like that, uh, providing I've had a half-decent race, I'll put them up on the I Am Talk Facebook page so you can check it out uh, there. I'll also have it on my coaching page as well uh, so check it out and remember we've got our Rote camp coming up uh, if you want to be a part of the action in 2020 we'll be heading over to Rote in July also end of June start of July next year it's going to be an awesome experience okay check it out okay guys uh, John you goss great week in Kona as always going to go have a few Kona Brewing Company beers now <sighs> and there's one thing I will say about the Kona race the, uh, post-race one of the best anywhere that, oh, that really? I've done because I've got this big grass area you finish the race you go sit on the, ra- the on the grass under a bit of shade watch your fellow competitors come in you get meal vouchers where you go get a burger and some chips yep. and then you've got about four beers and then people half the people don't drink their beers so they'll give you some their vouchers as well you can go and do oh. it and it's uh, just a 
really, really good atmosphere. It's funny to say that. My mum did a, a the St. Clair half marathon a couple weeks mm-hmm. ago. And it's a, it's a kind of a famous South Island race. It's very popular. Um, but she was just saying at the end of the race, it's just... It, the atmosphere is not that great. Mm-hmm. And we used to go to the, a race in Blenheim years ago with the running group. And at the end of the race, they had a band. Mm-hmm. It was just like light band. It wasn't anything crazy, but it was just light band, grassy mm-hmm. area, mm-hmm. food stands. And people just hung around. And it was just, mm. you know, it's, it's just so cool when you're at a race like that, isn't it? It is indeed. So good work, kind of 70.3. Okay, John. Well, I'm, I'm in Bali getting the message right now nice yeah, so that's the first thing I'll be doing when I get to Bali so anyway let's wrap up so the next couple of weeks we'll be back but we are just kind of chucking in interviews and stuff along the way so the boys will be back in the studio in a few weeks from now but we'll be back with shows next week so we'll wrap it up John I'm Russ I'm Mendo train hard train smart kick, kick hard. Hard.